Um, hello, church. My name's Jeremy Cooper, one of the pastors here. So grateful to be able to open up God's Word. And so if you're still looking for Haggai, they sent the tallest pastor to preach the shortest book. I'm not real sure why, but here we go. So if you found Matthew, go back to the left, two books. You'll pass Malachi and Zechariah, and then there'll be Haggai. And so it is the second shortest book in the Old Testament. Um, so when we talk about the minor prophets, we've reiterated it a couple of times. It's not that the message is minor, it's that most of them are tiny. And so this is one of the shorter ones, and, uh, and frankly, one of the easier ones to understand. So I am grateful for that. Um, and so as we come to this, Haggai is preaching somewhere around 520 B.C., um, he's going to receive four words from the Lord over about a four to five month period. Um, so before we get into it, uh, we're going to have to go back and try to get an understanding of what the temple of God and the tabernacle of God meant to the people of Israel. Um, we don't have quite the identity that the people of Israel did with the tabernacle and then the temple that Solomon built. Um, so if you understand the history of Israel, you go back to coming out of Egypt as the text referenced. And so coming out of the, the, the land of Egypt, the people came to Mount Sinai and coming down from Mount Sinai, Moses brought the, tables, the tablets from the Lord, the Ten Commandments. And then from there, they built a tent, which is called a tabernacle of meeting. And in that tabernacle was placed the Ark of the Covenant and the tablets of stone on which were written the Ten Commandments and Aaron's rod. And it was placed in the inner sanctuary where it was separated from the people by curtains, and shrouds so that they could not come in. And what entered that sanctuary, that inner sanctuary, was the presence of God. And so when the people of Israel came out of Egypt, God's presence visibly dwelt in a pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night, and then dwelt within this tabernacle. And so this was the visual representation to the entire people of Israel that there was a God among them that they had a God with them, and his name was the Lord Jehovah. And so for about 400 years from Moses all the way through the judges up to the kings, you had this tent of meeting where the presence of God visibly dwelt with the people of Israel. And then you had David who came to the throne, and David was a man after God's own heart, and he had a desire to build a permanent structure a temple where the presence of God would dwell forever with the people. But it wasn't for David to build this temple. It was ultimately for Solomon, his son. And so Solomon constructed a magnificent temple, one of beauty and splendor, in which the presence of God could come and dwell with the people. This temple became the place where the people of Israel came to worship and to dwell with God. And so when it was completed, Solomon dedicated the temple. And it's in the dedication of Solomon to this temple that we begin to understand the importance of what it meant for the people of Israel. And that Solomon's dedication is recorded in both Kings and in Chronicles. So in 2 Chronicles, we're just going to outline for a little while what this temple meant to the people of Israel. In 2 Chronicles 6, 18 through 20, Solomon prays this. He says, will God indeed dwell with men on earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. 
Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer with which your servant is praying before you, that your eyes may be open toward the temple day and night, toward the place where you said you would put your name. God put his name on this temple, and in this temple he dwelt with the people of Israel. This, in a very real sense, was God with us. God with the people of Israel. And they came to this temple, and they met with God, and they worshiped him there. But it wasn't just about God with us. In 2 Chronicles 6.21, Solomon continues, and he prays this, O Lord, you hear the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Forgive. So the people of Israel, they came to dwell with God at the temple, and they came to the temple to find forgiveness. And over and over again in this dedication from Solomon as he prays, he reiterates this one word, we come to the temple to find forgiveness. When the people repented and turned back from their sins, they came to the temple and the Lord forgave. But Solomon continues in verse 28. He says this, when there's famine in the land, pestilence, blight, mildew, locusts, grasshoppers, when enemies besiege us in the land of their cities, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel, when each one knows his own burden and his own grief and spreads out his hands to this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and give to everyone according to his ways. As the people of Israel look to this temple, whatever blight, pestilence, locust, grasshopper, whatever enemy, whatever grief or burden, they turned to the temple and they laid their burdens down and God heard according to the groans of their own heart and he gave to them protection from enemies, protection from disease, protection from sickness, protection from the swarming locusts, protection, comfort, love. This is what they felt at the temple. And so Solomon comes and he says this, what about the foreigners? What about those who are not Israelites, those who are not Jews by birth? And Solomon prays this, Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when they come and pray in this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. The temple of God was a declaration to the world that there was a living and active God whose name was Jehovah, and he was to be worshiped by all. This temple Solomon dedicates. So 400 years, or 440 years, from Moses to the dedication of the temple. It's going to be another 400 years, because this is around 960-ish BC. And another 400 years the Babylonians are going to raise up as a people. And we looked at it and we studied Habakkuk. You can see it in Isaiah. You can see it in Ezekiel. When the Babylonians come, they come against the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom has already been destroyed. 
And the southern kingdom is besieged by Sennacherib and the Babylonians. And in 587 to 586, or 586 to 587 BC, Jerusalem is destroyed, laid to waste. The temple of God has every article of value taken from it, removed to the land or the city of Babylon, and the entire place is burned to the ground, and the people of Israel are deported and moved to the land of Babylon, and all that is left is a pitiful remnant of people. And this temple that is supposed to be the place of God's presence, protection, His hope, His testimony to the nations that He is Jehovah, that He is God alone, is now gone. The covenant that God made with the people of Israel, that a king from David's line would stand on the throne forever, is now seemingly broken. And there is a scattered, broken people now in the land of Babylon with no temple to turn to, no place of God's presence on this earth. And then a king rises up from the Medo-Persian Empire after the Babylonians are destroyed. And in around 538, he comes to power. His name's Darius, around 536 BC. And the reason I'm putting these dates out there is often people will just, you know, argue with us about the accuracy of the Bible. No, these things happened. They did. They're in history books. Even if those history books are redacted, it happened. And in 536, Darius said to the remnant of Israel, go back to the land and rebuild the temple. So around 50-ish thousand people trotted back to the land of Israel, and they started to rebuild. And then they gave up. And now we're sitting about 16, 17 years after those people got back to the land of Israel to rebuild. And these poor folks have come back to the land. And Ezra records what happens to them. Ezra says the enemies of the people of Israel began to discourage them and tried to frighten them in order to stop them from building the temple. These enemies hired government officials to work against the people of Judah. The officials constantly did things to stop the Jews and to build the temple. This continued the whole time that Cyrus was king until Darius became the king of Persia. And so in Ezra 4.24, it says this, So the work stopped on God's temple in Jerusalem. The work did not continue until the second year that Darius was king in Persia. And this is where we are. So Darius is now ruler in the land. It's about 16 years since the temple stopped construction. And Haggai comes on the scene, and he's going to preach for about four months. He has four distinct prophecies. They are dated August 29th, 520 B.C., October 17th, 520, and then the final two are done on the same day, December 18th. So put yourself in the place of the people of Israel. They've been attacked politically, socially, militarily, from rebuilding the temple. Their identity as a people, their former glory, 800 years from Moses to the destruction of the temple, there was a visible representation to them and to the world that God's presence was with God's people, and it's gone. And now they're back being beaten, besieged, and beleaguered by the people around them. And Haggai now has to open up and tell them the word of the Lord. And it comes not to beat them down, but as encouragement. It comes to encourage them. 
And so now that we've got our head around kind of where they are, let's take a moment to go to the Lord for prayer and ask us wisdom and his spirit to come and maybe even to heal our wounds. Oh Lord, we come to you asking your spirit to come, to fill us. Lord, let us see again the glory of our great God. Let us find the hope that is in him. Lord, let us not look around to our circumstances to be discouraged, to be beaten, to have our spirits trampled on, but let us look up through the cross of Christ to the glory of our great God and rejoice that he stands still on his throne. And one day, one day, all this is over and we get to worship you forever. And we long for that day, Jesus. We long for it. Give us grace this morning, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So if you need kind of a tagline for this, Godward focus, perspective, and understanding is going to give us an unshakable hope. It just will. It's going to give us an unshakable hope. So the first point in this first sermon that Haggai preaches is this. Godward focus lets us see the presence of the Lord. Godward focus lets us see the presence of the Lord. The people were commanded to rebuild the temple, but they busied themselves not with rebuilding the temple, but with rebuilding their own homes and their houses. They lost focus, and, and don't misunderstand, they had every reasonable excuse not to rebuild the temple. They did. I mean, politically, militarily, socially, the people around them are actively trying to stop them from building the temple. So you know what they did? They did what they could control, and they started to build their own houses and to serve themselves. In chapter 1 of Haggai, it says this, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to the hand by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not come to rebuild the house of the Lord. That's what they're saying. It's not time yet. This is their excuse. All right. And I know every single one of us, because I've used it too, God asks us to do something, and we say what? Time ain't right. Didn't work then, it's not going to work now, all right? The time is always right when God asks us to obey. And so the people of Israel, they said, no, the time's not right. Lord, appreciate you asking, but we're going to wait for the time to get right. And so Haggai says, this, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, and he says, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, wages does so to put them in a bag full of holes. Hmm. So here's what happened. They focused on the things they could control. They went into the hills and they decided they were going to build houses for themselves. Protection from the outside world. They sowed so that they could have food. They drank, they ate, and they began to earn and live in the economy that was there, trying to earn more money so that they could panel more houses, get more drink, get more food, and continue to live their lives. And so I just want us to stop for a second and ask this question. Do we do often do this ourselves? How often have we paneled our own houses, sown much and received little, 
And I want us to think about this also in terms of our own contentment, our own joy. Why is it that we never are full, you know? You see, the people, instead of obeying the Lord, they focused on themselves. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord, why? Because of my house that lies in ruin, while each of you busies yourself with your own home. Where our focus is, our treasure is. And some treasures cannot fulfill. They just can't. For the people of Israel, there was a real sense of God withholding blessing because of lack of obedience. They focused on me, not he. They focused on I, not the great I am. They focused on getting, not serving. And so God actively blew their work away, withheld the rain so that it did not produce what the land could. And so let us not judge them too harshly. It's not. How many of us focus on things that are not Godward? Really? We panel our houses so that the Joneses down the street know who the real Joneses are in the neighborhood, right? We climb the rungs of the corporate ladder and we wonder why that next rung doesn't satisfy, right? We spend our time and money on the finest food and drink, but it's never enough. We go to bed full and we wake up hungry and we long for more. We walk in the nicest suits. We dress in the finest dresses. We shine our cars and then we hope for a nicer one. We earn to earn more, but it's never enough. Why? Because we're focusing on the wrong treasure. We're investing in the wrong thing. We've set our sights on things that we can control, that we have an outcome of, and it never fulfills. There's a movie called The Greatest Showman. It's one of me and the kids' favorites. We love it. You know, it's about P.T. Barnum. Not exactly historically accurate, but it's still a good musical. Um, so the King Bane character, his whole goal in life is to get more. He wants more paycheck. He wants more respect. He can never find it. He finally brings over an opera singer from Sweden. He's producing her as she's touring through the United States, and they're crushing it. And it's in this moment, he wants more, she wants him, and there's this song that comes out. The chorus goes like this. All the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars that we steal from the night sky will never be enough, never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough. Never be enough for me. Just won't. What are we holding on to that we wish would fill us, but it's just not enough? There is someone who's enough. There is. And he is our focus. He is with us. The people heard what Haggai said, and they, along with the governor and the high priest, you know what all of them did? They finally obeyed. They did. They finally picked up their tools, their trowels, their stone cutting, and they began to build the temple of God. In Haggai 1, 12 and 13, it says this, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the a son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet 
as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. And here is how the Lord responded to them. God came down and he said, I am with you. I am with you. It wasn't the temple that made God's presence be with them. It was God that said, my presence is with you. And he came down and his encouragement was this, I am with you. Friends, he's with you. He's with you right now. Guys, this is the same thing that Paul understood in Philippians 2 when we hear him say, I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content in whatever the circumstances, right? I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. What does he say next? Oh, you've got it on your bumper stickers. I can do all things, what? Through Christ who strengthens me, God is with us. That's why we can do it. That's why we don't have to look at our circumstances and get overwhelmed. God's with us. And we do everything through him who strengthens us. David in the Psalms understood this too. In Psalm 56, he says this, You have kept count of all my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back. In the day when I call, then I, this I know, that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What? can man do to me? What? Take your life? Okay. Jesus, here I come. Right? Take your stuff? Man, he's got it all. What are we holding on to? Jesus is everything. And when we look at him and he becomes our focus, Everything else pales, right? When God is with me, who cares what all the politicians say? Who would all, cares what all the socialites say? Who cares what the influencers say? God is for me. God is with me. I can do all things. He's got me. And we're blessed. So that's God's encouragement to them. They repent. They obey, and he says, I'm with you. And secondly, we see this. In Haggai 2, the text that we read earlier, in Haggai 2, 1 through 9, we see this, that Godward perspective lets us see the glory of the Lord. All right? As we remember, this was a magnificent temple that was destroyed in 586. It was one of the wonders of the world. People came from thousands of miles away just to see it, to witness Solomon's wisdom, and to worship in the, in the temple. So 586, the people are destroyed. They're deported. In 536, by my count, that's 50 years, they come back. There were still some people there that remember the former temple. There were still some old-timers there who knew what it was like to worship in Solomon's temple. And so they come back to the land of Israel, and they're part of the remnant that's going to be rebuilding the temple. And 16 years later, it's still not even done. Barely the foundation has been started. And so these folks that remember it, and some have seen it firsthand, 
Even the young people have heard firsthand accounts of the temple of God from those who saw it. And then we've got 70-some years of time and exaggeration and memory to help us remember that whatever we build today is not even going to come close to compare with what was before. So in Haggai 2 and 3, or Haggai chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, it says this, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? So they're trying to build this temple. They're getting pressured from the outside, and they're looking at it going, and even if we get this thing done, it's nothing compared to what was here before. It was nothing. This is one of the strongest forms of discouragement, guys. This is the wrong point of comparison. It's having perspective, right, that sees things, oh, they're doing that, and all I'm doing is this. We tend to measure our worth based on comparison to the present and past of those who, in our opinion, are doing it better. That's how we tend to measure our worth. We're like, well, man, they're doing it better than me, right? So John Piper, in his magnificent sermon on this book, he gives the warning. He says, guys, if we do this, this can be debilitating to our ministry, to our lives, to our families. Those in leadership here at the church, do you compare yourself to others and see their ministry and wonder, man, why can't I do it that well? Why isn't my ministry that big? Small group leaders, do you look at other small groups and think, they got more people than me. They must be doing better than me, right? Ladies, you're discipling one or two people and you look around and there's somebody else discipling four or five and you're like, my ministry's just not that big. Theirs must be better than mine. You see what we start to do? We start to put our value in what we're doing in our ministry and then we compare it to somebody else and they've got more. They've got bigger. Therefore, they have better. Pastors, of which I'm one, we do well to heed this warning. Do we look at other pastors, other ministries, other churches, and see God blessing the work of the gospel and wish, man, I wish God would use me more like that. That'd be awesome. That's got to be better. Parents, do you look at other parents and think, man, they're just, they're crushing it. You know, their kids are better. I'm just not as good. At work, do you look around and compare yourself to others and you think they've made more money, therefore they are better? When this discouragement comes, <clears throat> it comes because we have looked at others, not at God. Right? And often the result is this. We lay down the tools of our work, we give up, and we walk away from fruitful, faithful ministry because we had our eyes on the wrong thing. Godward must be our perspective to lift us from this folly. There's a famous poem called Opportunity. It's a great little poem by Edward Still. He says this, This I beheld or dreamed in a dream, 
There spread a cloud of dust along a plain, and underneath the cloud, or in it, raged a furious battle, and men yelled, and swords shocked upon swords and seals. A prince's banner wavered, then staggered backward, hemmed by foes. A craven hung along the battle's edge and thought, had I a sword of keener steel, that blue blade that the king's son bears, but this blunt thing, and he snapped it and flung it from his hand, and lowering, crept away and left the field. Then came the king's son, wounded, sore-bested, and weaponless, and saw the broken sword, hilt buried in the dry and trodden sand, and ran and snatched it, and with battle shout lifted afresh, hewed his enemy down, and saved a great cause that heroic day. Let me just stop for a second. Your perspective, where you see yourself, has a great effect on the outcome of what you're trying to accomplish. The craven held his sword and had not the courage to enter the battle. The king's son saw a broken hilt and saw a weapon with which he could win the war. Guys, we don't have a broken hilt of a sword. We have the God of the universe. Haggai says a few things to this. He says this, Once again, God says, I'm with you and in your midst. He says, I will shake the world. I will shake the heavens and the earth. All of it is mine, and I will once more fill it with my glory. Here's the answer to the discouragement that we feel. We underestimate the one who has called us to our ministry when we compare the worth of our ministry to those of another. If the God of this universe has called you to disciple one person in this life and one person alone, you do it to the best of your ability because the glory is God's. And the worth of the ministry is the worth of the one who called you to it. That's it. The worth of no one's ministry is found in the worldly size of it, but in the size of the one who called us to it. The people of Israel said this temple isn't as big. They said this temple isn't as glorious. But God said it's not about the building. It's about me. And I'm infinitely big and I'm infinitely glorious. Get your eyes on me. And when they did, you know what happened? God filled it with his glory. Every ministry, every action, every moment is raised because of the one who called us. And his glory will fill the world as the waters cover the sea. It will. His glory's coming, and it'll fill this world. It's written in Isaiah, it's written in Habakkuk. His glory will fill this world as the waters cover the sea. Measure your worth by the one who called you, not by those who are around you. All right, the last, or the third sermon, not the last one, there's, there's four, so we got two more. So the third sermon that Haggai preaches, and luckily for us, he preaches short sermons, right? And so the, the, the third sermon he preaches comes, and it says this, Godward understanding lets us see the blessing of the Lord. It's in 2, 10 through 19. So the problem is this, the people of Israel had a wrong understanding they began to obey, they began to do the work of the Lord, and they began to believe that their good works made them holy. But God says, no, no, you don't be holy by doing the good works. God makes you holy, and therefore you do good works. It's a massive difference. Y'all might think, well, that's just subtle, and he's just playing with words. I'm not. I'm not. Our understanding of this is huge. We do the works of God because he loved us. 
We don't do the works of God so he'll love us. Doesn't happen. So it seems that these people started to think they were holy or more spiritual because they were doing this good work. And so he says this in 10 through 19. Haggai says, thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priest about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches the fold or bread or stew or wine of any kind of food, does it become holy? No, is what the priest says. Then Haggai says, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any thing, does it become clean? No, it doesn't. Unclean can't make something clean. Unholy things don't make something holy. If you've got a clean floor and a kid walks across it with muddy shoes, do the shoes become clean? Muddy hands don't wash clean dishes. They don't. The mud rubs off, not the cleanness. And so here's what happens, right? They start building the temple, they start obeying, and they start thinking, we're crushing it, guys. We are killing it. We're doing the works of the Lord, and blessings are on their way. And before we judge too harshly, before we start saying those darn Israelites, don't we? Don't we? I mean, really? Let's be honest. You know, don't we have entire theologies and entire denominations based on this? Don't we? All right. Even us. Then we say, look, I've started by going back to church. The Lord's going to bless me. Okay. Man, I've started reading my Bible. Things are about to turn around. Okay. You know, I gave so much money last month to the church. This next month's going to be a blessing. <laughs> and what do we mean by blessing? Well, we mean more money for us. Let's, let's be real honest. That's what we mean, Right? I'm going to get a better job. I'm going to get, we go back to it. I'm going to get a better car. I'm going to get a better house. Why do we do this? And I don't stand up here saying, you know, throwing stones in a glass house. Look, we're all guilty of this. We do. We get so easily swayed. Our eyes just start wandering around. Ooh, ooh. That's what we do. And so let's not be too harsh on the people of Israel here. Let's take stock of ourselves. And let's ask the priest ourselves, if I start doing all these good works, am I going to be holy? No, you're not. You're not. But Haggai's response from the Lord is absolutely beautiful. The Lord reminds them. He reminds them. He says this. He says, when you came to a heap and you wanted 20 measures, guess what? There were only 10. When you came to the well and you wanted to draw 50 measures, there was only 20. There was blight and mildew and hail. And have any of the seeds produced? Where's the olive tree? Where's the fig tree? Where's the pomegranate? They're not there. They're not there. He says this, Since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, in verse 18 and in verse 19, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the wine the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. They just haven't. But from this day forward, I will bless you. That's the Lord's promise. 
What changed? Well, the people of Israel repented and obeyed. And the order is huge. Obedience before repentance is trying to come to a holy ATM and demand that God give you what you want. Repentance, coming to a holy God, being broken and being humble and saying, God, I heard your call. Forgive me and I'll obey. Now we're not seeking the blessing, we're seeking to obey. And what does God do? He lavishes blessings. He lavishes blessings. Because it is about faith and repentance and then, and then obedience. Guys, the people turned and repented from not building and then began to build. But the building didn't make them holy. God did. The faith and repentance did. That's what makes us holy. We all come to the Lord with muddy hands and muddy feet, and we walk away from the cross of Christ with clean hands and feet shod with the gospel. That's what we do. The last sermon is beautiful and maybe the little bit most tricky. <clears throat> but the last sermon points us out that this Godward focus and perspective gives us a hope that is unfailing. All right. Just a little bit about understanding prophetic words in the Old Testament and how they apply to the New Testament and our understanding of where they point. A lot of times there were things in the Old Testament, you see prophecy and there's a direct fulfillment. There would be a fulfillment in that day. And then the prophecy just gets too big for the person it's about. And you're going, well, that seems odd. Well, that's because the prophet is trying to point us forward to something that is coming. And this is what is about to happen with Zerubbabel. This last prophetic word from Haggai says this, the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Man, anytime you get two words from the Lord on the same day, people need to stop and listen, all right? And so he says this, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day declares the Lord, the Lord uh, the, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. All right. It just feels like that got a little big for Zerubbabel, didn't it? It did. Whole heavens shaking everything down. Well, let's take it just for a moment, kind of work through this. This is the last message that Haggai is going to preach. Four-month ministry, incredibly productive. The people of Israel got back to work, and this temple is then built four years later. It's completed. And so he tells Zerubbabel, you're going to be a signet ring. Signet ring is simply a ring given by a king to somebody under him that now carries the authority of the king. Anything sealed with that ring becomes law or has the authority of the king himself. So the Lord is saying, Zerubbabel is going to be my authority here on earth through this temple. God is renewing his covenant with the people. And he's saying this temple will be built. Zerubbabel's hearing all of Haggai's words and he's listening and he's like, 
and I'm seeing the people for the past 16 years, it's not getting done. But Haggai says, no, it will get done. And so Zerubbabel is like, all right, trying to believe you. But he says, no, you're going to be the signet ring. You will be the authority of the Lord. They will see in this place that the temple of the Lord is built and that the glory of the Lord still dwells with his people. And so in Zechariah 4, 7 through 9, it says this, what are you? great mountain before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain and he will bring out of the, he, and he will bring out the capstone accompanied by shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Four years after this temple starts, this reconstruction here, Zerubbabel lays the capstone and it is complete. It happens. See, when God promises something's going to get done, it gets done. It just does, right? The Lord said, take it to the bank. It's going to get done. And so Zerubbabel did, in fact, finish the temple, but it was still small, wasn't it? It didn't have the glory and the grandeur that the previous temple built. And so we have this partial fulfillment with Zerubbabel that there is the completion of the second temple, but it's not as grand and bold and glorious. But another 400 years pass. I don't know why it all breaks up into 400 years, but it does. So another 400-ish years come along. Herod the Great enters. He's ruling in Judah, and he begins to expand this temple. And he expands it to a point where its grandeur and its majesty starts to rival that of Solomon's temple, right? And so we see another partial fulfillment. God says, yeah, my glory is going to stand above, and my glory will be there. And the glory of this temple will be greater than the previous. And so we see the partial fulfillment in the first building of it. We see it getting expanded in its glory, but it still doesn't quite fit, does it? Where's the shaking of the heavens? Where's the rider and the chariot being overthrown? And this is where it all just is too big for Zerubbabel to fulfill. That's why we have to look further and look past to someone else. God is going to bring a future glory so much more than any present glory. The first purpose of the temple was what? It would be God's presence with us, right? He said, this is God with you. There one day came a baby born in Bethlehem whose name was what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is what the temple points to. The temple was never to be the permanent establishment of God with us. That belonged to a man named Jesus, whose other name was Emmanuel, which says, I am God with you. We have in Christ God's presence fully with us because he is God with us. It continues. When that baby grew up, he walked into the temple that Herod had expanded. He walked into that temple and he said to all the people around, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And they said, are you mad? Are you crazy? It took years to build this temple and then years upon years to expand it to its present state. And he says, all you people. He was referring to the temple of his body. Because he's the true temple. He's the true dwelling place of God with man. 
And that temple was destroyed and torn down in 70 AD. But Jesus hung upon the cross. And when he did, the veil of that temple was ripped in two. And the presence of God now dwells with men through the true temple, who is Jesus Christ. His body was the real temple. We also see that the nations will shake, that the heavens will declare. There's one true king, right? Colossians tells us that what? In Jesus, all thrones, rulers, dominions, and authorities were created through him and for him. Jesus created all of it. It also says in Philippians that one day every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Revelation tells us that one day this world will be a footstool under the foot of Jesus as he reigns on his throne. He's the true king, and he is one day going to come back and shake the nations, and the heavens will rip open, and the thrones and dominions and the rulers and the authorities will all be cast down, and Christ alone will reign. Christ alone. And then back up in Haggai, it says, that there's one day going to be peace. Well, we don't see peace yet, do we? Now we continue to see the anger, the hatred, the hypocrisy, the fighting, the rebellion. But Jesus' other name was what? The Prince of Peace. And Christ is the fulfillment of that. And he has come to bring peace to this world. And that peace will one day ultimately be made when he returns and we see him face to face, and we who are the bride of Christ run to the arms of our great Savior, and we worship with the saints of old at the true temple, the Son of God, who is the Prince of Peace, who is God with us, and we will rejoice with Haggai and the rest of the faithful remnant in the true temple for forever, and it'll never end. Non-Christian friend, some of this stuff you may not have understand, but you might have a longing in your heart you have no peace. Well, we offer to you a simple solution, but it's bigger than the universe. His name is Christ. Run to him. Christian friend, we love you. Will you rest in Jesus? Will you rest in our great Savior? Lord, we love you.